We began a series in the book of Colossians a number of weeks ago, and we entitled it Enough. We entitled it Enough because as you look in the book of Colossians, it points out that Jesus is supreme. He is all-sufficient. He is enough. He is enough for salvation to save us, to spend eternity in heaven, and he is enough to guide us and lead us through life as we live it here on earth. It's a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to a church in Colossae, and it was a church that had been founded maybe close to maybe 10 years or so ago. And as this church was founded, uh, they were doing well, but then there were some false teachers that were sliding in, and people were adding different things to the gospel message. And so the pure gospel message that had been presented to them had now had other people bringing in some things that say, well, maybe we need to add this or subtract this, and let's put this in. And all of a sudden, there is what we call syncretism to where you've added so many different things that the original product stands over here, and then there's this new product over here that really doesn't look very much like the original. And this is what Paul was fighting for and saying, you need to get rid of all that kind of stuff that's been added to it and get back to the true gospel. Let's take all those other things out. And as according to what we saw in that picture, just that crystal blue water is what we need to have, the truth of the gospel. And for two chapters, he theologically lays out his argument and sets everything up. And then the last two chapters is where he moves in to the practical application. How do we apply all of this? And he calls the life that they are living the resurrected life because it says that we have been raised with Christ. We've died to ourselves. We've been raised with Christ and that power lives within us. And so the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit lives within our hearts when we receive Christ as Savior. And so we have this resurrected life. We have that power that lives within us. And so how do you live that life? Well, he talked about, we talked about this last week, of things that you need to put off things you need to strip away, things you need to get rid of, things you gotta stop doing. And so we talked about that, listed all the different things he had to stay away from these things. But then, after we finished that, he then went in verses 12 through 17, but these are the things you need to put on. This is now the new wardrobe that you are to be able to wear. And so often in preaching, we always talk about the things you're supposed to stop. Don't do this. Don't do that. Stop doing this. Quit doing that. That we forget about talking about the things that we're supposed to start doing. And so that's what we'll be talking about today in part two of living this resurrected life. And those are the things that what we are supposed to do. What are, what are we supposed to put on? And just think about this. The old self has died. We've put off the old self. Now we have this new self. Now we gotta get a wardrobe that's going to befit the person who is this new person in Christ. So what are we supposed to put on? Well, before we talk about what we're supposed to put on, the very first thing I think we need to look at is the position of the believer, the position of the believer. Now let me read verses 12 through 17, and then we're gonna zero in at the very beginning of verse 12 and let you see the position that you are in. This is how God sees you. Verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called on one body, in one body. And be thankful. 
Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Living the resurrected life, part two, what are we supposed to all put on? Before we even look at what we put on, we need to understand what the position is as the believer. Now, for every person here who's made a decision to receive Christ as Savior, to know that you've been adopted into the family of God, you've been born again, you're part of his family, this is how God looks at you. Verse 12, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. God's chosen ones. In the Old Testament, God had a people. It was Israel. Those were his chosen people. When Christ died for our sins, was raised from the dead, any person who put their faith in Christ became the chosen people. You, if you're a believer in Christ, you're God's chosen. And he says, holy. That word means set apart, consecrated, and beloved. That means dear to your heart, dear to his heart. And so if you had to put in one sentence where you stand with God, it is this, God's chosen people, dear to his heart, and set apart for him. God's chosen people, dear to his heart, and set apart for him. If it was me and I was sitting in the pew, I'd write that sentence down. And as I'd write that sentence down, I would place it somewhere either in my wallet or in my Bible. For some, it might get more action if it's in your wallet, okay? (laughs) I'm just kidding. (laughs) I don't look my Bible often. All right, put it in your wallet, okay? I use my phone to read the Bible. Okay, that's good. Uh, But hold on to that. Look at that statement. God's chosen people, dear to his heart and set apart for him. That is how God sees you. Whatever it was that happened in your past, God has forgiven that. And too often times we say, I think God looks at me as you pick the sin. No, you're God's chosen people, you're dear to his heart and you're set apart for him. Whatever it is you did last week, whatever it is that you habitually struggle with, whatever those things are that you've got these battles going on, if you're a part of God's family, you're God's chosen person. You're dear to his heart and you're set apart for him. Now, I think it's important to understand that because that then motivates us to live for him. Because we're not living out of this guilt to try to please him. We're living out of thanksgiving because he loves us and because of all that he's done for us. And so he says, you put off the old self and you put on the new self. And that's where we get to the second point, And that is the wardrobe of the believer. This is the wardrobe of the believer. And this is what we're supposed, supposed to put on. Number one is the attitude of compassion. The attitude of compassion. A definition for compassion is uh, pity and tenderness toward the suffering and the hurting. There's a pity and a tenderness toward the suffering and the hurting. It's an attitude that you have that when you look and you see people and they're hurting, you're in your soul, you begin to be stirred in your soul and there's, but there's a pity there, there's a, there's a tenderness there. And then we'll talk about that it usually will lead to action. But compassion is something that Jesus himself had and it many times motivated him to action. In Matthew chapter six, verses 36 and 37, he was getting his disciples and he says, look out over there. And he saw the people, he said, they're like sheep without a shepherd and it said he had compassion for them. 
He sent his disciples out to go doing two-on-two to uh, tell the word about Jesus and to cast out demons and to heal people and to see what it was like to get in, get a little skin in the game. And when those disciples came back, he said, okay, guys, we're going to go on a retreat. So they got on this side of the Sea of Galilee and, and sailed on a boat and came to this side, and they were going to a desolate place just to retreat. But the people saw them, and they began to walk around the lake, and they met them. And as he met these throngs of people, he had on his daytimer, he had in his, in his calendar that he was supposed to meet with his disciples, but it said he had a compassion for the people. And he said, men, we're going to change our plans. We're going to sit and we're going to talk and teach these people. And he did late in the afternoon. And then all of a sudden when it was time for food, they said, we well, got to send them home. And he said, no, let's see what we can do here. And they found the the, the young boy with the two fish and five loaves of bread, and he fed over 5,000 people right there, all because of that compassion. So when we're putting on this new self, if we want to live that resurrected life, the very first thing is, is we need to have an attitude of compassion. Number two is we need to have an action of kindness, an action of kindness. Once I feel that compassion, then the next step is to live it out, and that is kindness. Definition of kindness is a helpful, considerate, and gracious no matter the circumstances. Helpful, considerate, and gracious no matter the circumstances. That is what is shown in kindness. Now as believers, we're to be showing kindness towards others because God has shown kindness to us. But everything I've read, a lot of things I've read on kindness is more than just um, taking food to someone's home when they're sick or when a new baby's born, that's great. We need to continue to do that. But kindness is like a, a step further. It means keeping your eyes and ears open to be listening and watching for those who have needs or those who are going through times of frustration. It's not the simple low-hanging fruit of, hey, I just found out that so-and-so just had a baby, let's take something to him. It is me walking through life living life, experiencing life with others, and then locking in on someone who's going through a tough time and has a need. And so out of an act of kindness, I will go and do that for you. A number of years ago, Janice and I had sat down and uh, we talked about when we went to seminary. Okay, here we are. We both have family in the state of Alabama. We travel out to Texas, out to Fort Worth, where we don't have anyone. And so we're there, we're going to seminary, we're working at a church in Dallas, and then after we completed that time, then we go to Ruston, Louisiana, and we don't have any, any family there. And so we didn't make a big deal about it, but it was interesting just to see how people came alongside with, uh, with the gift of kindness. To where we were out there in Dallas with no family, and people would invite us to come to join their family for a Thanksgiving meal. That was, that was kind of them. It was the, a guy named Richard White who, uh, when, when Janice was, they allowed us to live in a house right next to the church, and I was in seminary, and uh, as we moved in this house, there was really no place for a study. There was a place for my a desk, but it was just a wide open area. And so, in just her sharing ideas as to what could happen there, Richard White just took it on himself. And he says, tell you what, I'll do that. I'll enclose that area just so he can have, have that study there, just out of the goodness of his heart. We had a guy that we really loved. This guy's name was Chuck, and he opened up a hamburger place called Chuck's. It was incredible. And uh, Janice did a little bit of uh, work for them, a little bit of graphic design stuff. And when he paid her, he also paid her in coupons 
to go to Chuck's to eat. Now, you just got to put yourself in our seat. When you're a seminary student, and even if you're working at a church, you don't make a lot of money, okay? I mean, we're just, for us to go out to dinner, this was huge. And, uh, and every so often, Chuck Wright would just come by and just see you in church or so, and he'd say, hey, just want to give you something. Hey, Coop, it's like gold. And, you know, we're sitting there saying, we can get the burger combo. I mean, it was incredible. But it's just out of kindness that he would do that. Now, and I had this illustration, and I feel so sorry for the young people because you, don't, you won't understand this at all. Uh, and some of the other people here may not understand it. Truly, there was a day when there were not football games on every station. Uh, there was only a couple stations that would have a football game. And uh, so I'm out there in Texas and in Louisiana, and they didn't show Auburn football games. They didn't show them. So you couldn't watch the games, and you couldn't get it on the radio, and it was just frustrating. There was no internet. And my uh, sister-in-law would tape the Auburn football review, okay? And, and during those days, they covered a, showed a bunch of the game, and she would tape those on the VCR tape, put it in an envelope, and mail it to me each week out there where I was living. That was incredible. I mean, I'd get that package, somebody be at our house, oh, is that a commentary? Better than that, <laughs> Auburn Football Review <laughs> on there. <laughs> but just an act of kindness. I mean, that's what I'm talking about. Just things where you're looking around and you say, that's a need, I want to try to help you with that. William Penn made this statement. He says, I expect to pass through life but once. And if therefore there be any kindness that I can show or any good thing I can do, any fellow being, let me do it now, for I shall not pass this way again. You cannot do a kindness too soon, for you never know how soon it'll be too late. Kindness. You have an attitude of compassion, and then you have the action of kindness. And then he lists seven attributes, okay? Are you ready? Seven attributes. Number one, humility. Humility. He says that we need to have compassion, need to have kindness, need to have humility. Now, humility during that day in that pagan world was looked down as something as weakness. But what the New Testament did was they took this humility and they drove it even deeper and gave it a deeper meaning and made it the noblest of Christian graces. And one definition of humility is this, a freedom from arrogance that grows out of the recognition that we all all that we have and are comes from God. One more time. It's a freedom from arrogance. That's the opposite of humility. How am I free from that arrogance? It's when I realize that everything that I have, my gifts, my talents, where I was born, where I am, all of that is, comes from God. All that I have, all that I am, it comes from God. And when I recognize that, there's no way I can puff myself up on there. That is humility. It's a freedom from arrogance. It says we need to have this as, um, as part of our wardrobe to yield ourselves totally to God, to be aware of that anything that's a strength of mine, I give him honor and glory. Anything that's a personal weakness, I'm dependent on God to help me to improve in those areas. James talks about this in James chapter 4, verse 6, when he says, God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. He opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the uh, to the humble. You know, I looked at that and I said, I don't think I want to be something that God opposes. I mean, when it says God opposes the proud, it means he stands against that. 
It says he's against those who display an attitude of arrogant superiority, of self-centeredness, of self-sufficiency. And for those who seek glory for themselves, God opposes that. However, he shows favor to the humble. You put off the old self. You put on the new self. And what do you put on? Well, you put on compassion. You put on kindness. You put on humility. And what goes hand in hand with humility is meekness. And that's the second attribute, meekness. That is called bridled strength, power under control. Bridled strength or power under control. Now, when I was growing up, uh, in, uh, and if you had asked me, what is the definition of meekness, I would have said Mr. Whipple. Anybody know the Charmin commercials growing up over here? Mr. Whipple, don't squeeze the Charmin, right? He was such a mousy man, okay? And uh, that's what I thought meekness was. I thought it was Mr. Whipple, but it's not. You know, meekness is this bridal strength, this power under control. A meek person is someone who is a person of great strength. They just know how to control it. They just know how to control it. Aristotle described the meek man this way. One who's angry on the right occasion with the right people at the right moment for the right length of time. That's pretty good. It's not a person that doesn't ever get angry of something, but there are times when there's the right occasion for you to bow up and get upset about something, and you pick the right person, right occasion, and for the right length of time. The meek person has strong self-control, doesn't give away to ill temper, retaliation, dies to himself, and does the right thing. Third attribute is patience. Patience. One definition of patience is handling anger slowly. Now, uh, I don't like to throw out a lot of Greek words, but this is one of my favorites uh, because the way it, it's, it's, they put this together, the word patience, macrothumia. Macrothumia, it's, a, it's a, uh, two words, macro. Macro means long. Thumia means anger. Now, you could look at that and you say, I'm gonna keep angry for a long time. <laughs> no, that's not what it means. It means that you handle anger slowly. You don't light a fuse and just jump off at someone. Handle it slowly. That's what patience is. Now, you also got to understand that when Paul is writing, he's writing to people talking about relationships with others and that we need to be patient with others. I'm just going to go out on a step out and say that if we wrote the word patience today, most of us would think about our lifestyle. Patience. Am I going to get that present in 24 hours like I thought I was going to get it? Okay? Have I got the email yet? It hasn't come yet. I don't know why it has not. I have texted you or you've not responded to me and I have no idea why I have not gotten that yet. Okay? I told my mother she's supposed to be here. She's supposed to pick me up at 315. It's now 318. I have no idea where she is. What is going on? Why aren't you here? What's going on? You know, I'm standing in line. I don't know how long I'm going to be here. Which cashier? Is this one or is that the best one? I've got another five minutes. I've got to go. I've got something in the oven. I've got to run back home. I've got to have patience. You know, they don't, I don't think they had that. Well, it's going to be about another four days before you get that order. Hey, that's great with me. You know, first century, there wasn't a whole lot of uh, fast-moving things we needed. So it's mainly patience with people. Long-suffering. Handle anger slowly. Patience. Uh, 
being able to put up with people even when it's not an easy thing to do. Patience, being able to pat a person on the head when you really want to kick them in the rear, okay? <laughs> Patience, Patience, slow down. And then you come to the next verse and it talks about bearing with one another. Well, I took the bearing with one another and I really put it between three and four because it could be either one. Four is a forgiving spirit. So he says in here, bearing with one another and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. So bearing with one another, that means putting up with others who have things that they do that we just don't like. I just gotta bear with you. And all of us do that. We all have things that somebody doesn't like. I know that's a shock to some of you, but it's true. There are things I do when I preach that just bug some of you. And you go, there he goes again. God just can't stand it when he does that. Bear with one another. Just hang in there with me, okay? There are things people do, and they just kind of get on your nerves. And he says, you just need to bear with one another. That's a part of it. Let's love through all of this. Let's bear with one another. And then he says, but now if somebody offends you, you need to have a forgiving spirit. If one has a complaint against another, if somebody offends you, don't bottle it up. Don't stew on it. You are to forgive that person. And he says that we're to forgive as Christ has forgiven us. And so by doing this, by doing the forgiveness and your conscience is cleansed, the matter is dealt with, the burden is lifted, and now you can begin to think and act like Christ towards not only other people, but to the person that offended you. Now his hope is that we would keep unity within that church. And he says, if you have got this attitude of compassion, and you begin to act kindly to other people, and you're humble, and you're meek, and you show patience with others, you gotta understand, somebody is going to offend you. Somebody's going to wrong you. Somebody is going to do something wrong. And when that happens, don't harbor it, don't hold on to it, but what you need to do is you need to forgive them, even as Christ has forgiven you. You need to go on and forgive them. Don't hold on to it. You know, the Bible talks a lot about this, about when we like to hold on to this resentment to others. And it says it in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 14 and 15. It says in here, it says, make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. And without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Look at the very last part of that. How does a bitter root begin to grow up? It's when someone has done something that has offended me and, um, and I decide that I really don't want to forgive them. And when I don't forgive them, all of a sudden, this bitter root grows up. And people who never forgive get trapped in a jail that they've made for themselves. They are a bondage to bitterness. And what happens is, is that unforgiving spirit refuses to be soothed it refuses to be healed. It refuses to forget. Because you see, you don't want to give up that anger. You want to hold something over them. There's something about when somebody's done something wrong to you that you can hold it over them and you can maintain that anger. Oh, you may say in words, it's okay, but really you haven't forgiven them. You just want to hold it over them. And then every day, every week, every year, it gets stronger and stronger and you get angrier and angrier. Angrier. 
And that's where that bitter root begins to have bitter fruit. And it affects the lives of other people around you. It affects the lives of your relationship with your spouse, the relationship with your children, relationship with your friends, relationship with those you work with because of this bitterness that is trapped in there. Every church squabble seems to have had bitterness behind the scenes. Most family arguments, separations, divorces have bitterness somewhere in the mix. And it affects everything. So what Paul is saying is to prevent this, you are to forgive others as Jesus has forgiven you. Whenever they add that tagline, that just kind of takes away your argument, doesn't it? <laughs> just when you're wanting to say, hey, you're to forgive others, you say, hey, you don't know what they did to me. You don't know how angry that made me feel. As Jesus forgives you. You see, he is on record of an example of both word and deed of forgiving. As he's being crucified on a cross, his prayer to the heavenly father, his father is, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Forgive them. Forgive the guy that's taken that nine-inch nail spike and driving it through his hands. He says, forgive them. I don't know what they do. And then when he raises from the dead, and as he comes back from the dead, he wants to meet with his disciples. The same guys who in his greatest hour of need fell asleep when he said pray for him, and then when the people came to arrest him, they ran, and they left him. Now see, for most of us, we would, if that had been us, we'd have said, guys, you're out, I gotta find another group to work with. But he forgave them, and then he forgave Peter. At least Peter can say, I didn't run away. I, I kind of stuck around, but then I denied you three times and even cursed your name. And he forgave Peter. And he says, in that type of forgiveness, then whatever someone has wronged us, we are in turn to forgive them. We are to forgive as Jesus has forgiven you. Now think about putting on this new self. Because a lot of things I'm saying to you, you say, well, Danny, this is, that's just almost supernatural. It is. It's because you have the supernatural Holy Spirit that lives within you. It's a resurrected power of God that's in you. And this is what you're supposed to put on. And, 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 you, and you put on that, that compassion. And you begin to do those acts of kindness. And you take on that attribute of humility and meekness. And you, you take that patience. And then you've got that forgiving spirit that comes along with it. And then he says, the fifth attribute is love. And he says in verse 14, and above all these put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. It binds everything together in perfect harmony. Love, that's that, uh, the word here is the agape love. It's the in spite of love, in spite of what someone may have done, you love them. It's a sacrificial love that God has for us and the love we're supposed to have for God, for others, and also for the world. And he says, and above all, he carries on the metaphor of clothing. It's like on top of it all, over it all. So it's as if, if I had a, uh, an overcoat here, I could pick up that overcoat and put the overcoat on and that would represent love. And he says, you've completed the ensemble. You have to have love. And he says, and if you have love, then this keeps the harmony. It binds everything together. It makes it an unbreakable fellowship. What love does, it checks those selfish tempers at the door and it enable to uh, help people to, to be able to see themselves as God sees them and to be able to see our Lord and just wrap all this love together. It's fellowship and it's harmony. 
And it's this attribute. Well, it was interesting because when I read that, um, and it said that, that it, what it does is it, it brings all this together. It took me to 1 Corinthians 13. I started thinking, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. That's what we call the love chapter. And that almost every wedding has this either written or it's within the vows. And if you look at the first part of that chapter, verses four and five, look what it says about love. This is the description of love. He says, love is patient and kind. Okay, what have we talked about? Kindness, and we've talked about patience. This is what love is. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. That's humility and meekness. So we've got our kindness, we've got our patience, we've got humility, we've got meekness. It is not irritable or resentful. We have forgiveness. It's not resentful. It's willing to forgive. So love comes over all. And then it says, peace. Verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And let the peace of Christ, peace, Peace is not the absence of war or, or violence or strife. It is a condition of wholeness and well-being. Peace is wholeness and well-being, knowing everything is under the Lord's control. That's what peace is. Peace is not like, well, everything's kind of settled down. We don't have any strife over here. It's deeper than that. It's a wholeness. It's a well-being, knowing that everything is under the Lord's control. Everything's under his control. In John 14, 27, Jesus says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You're not to be troubled, you're not to be afraid. I give you my peace. In the book of Philippians, uh, Paul tells them, he says, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, in prayer and supplication, you are to pray. And when you pray, it says, the peace of God will come and it will guard your heart. The peace of God will guard your hearts. So when we think about the attributes, one of the things that we are to do is to grab this peace. You say, well, how do I grab the peace? Well, if you look at verse 15, it says, and let the peace of Christ. It means it's your choice. Jesus has given us his peace. It's your choice as to whether you let that peace rule or control your heart. Now, when you read this, this verse, that word rule some of your passages may have control. The actual literal word is umpire. Umpire. And it comes just like we know what an umpire is. It is one during that day, during the ancient games, that would be the one that kind of the direct the games and would arbitrate the games. It was an umpire. And if you literally translated this verse, it says, and let the peace of Christ be the umpire in your heart. Let the peace of Christ be the umpire in your heart, all right? Be the referee in your heart. So I said, what does that mean? Let the peace of Christ be the umpire in your heart. Well, in order to figure out exactly what it means to direct your heart, I called a pro. I called Steve Shaw and uh, called him yesterday on his work day. <laughs> I know he appreciate it. Uh, I called him, I said, Steve, here's what I want you to do. I want you to send me a text and just send me a couple of sentences. And if I was going to an orientation, what is an SEC official supposed to do? What is the responsibility of a referee? So he sent me. And he picked, I picked a line out of one of the things that he said, and this is the responsibility of a referee. 
the overall management of the game to ensure order and player safety. The overall management of the game to ensure order and player safety. Because if we don't go by the rules, then some players can get injured. If we don't go by the rules, it's total chaos. So what they do, they manage the game. They don't call the shots, they manage the game for order and player safety. So I got me thinking, let the peace of Christ be the overall manager of your life to ensure order and your safety, to keep you from making decisions out of fear and anxiety, to keep you from overreacting and losing hope, to settle you down, to keep you within the sidelines, and to relieve you of anxiety and stress. The peace of Christ. There will be things that will come into your life that you think are going to take you down. There are things that are going to take that stressometer and kick it to a high level. And what Jesus says, I give you peace. Paul says, let that peace of Christ guard your hearts. Let me be able to take some deep breaths. Let me be able to handle the anxiety or the stress that comes. Help me not to make decisions that will hurt myself or hurt my family or hurt others. Help me to stay within the sidelines, manage the game, help me with my walk. And so one of the attributes is let's have the peace of Christ. Well then when you have the peace of Christ, the last thing is gratitude. And how perfect to have this passage of scripture on the week of Thanksgiving. Because it's the very last thing he says here. He says, um, and be thankful. Out of nowhere, and be thankful. It's, a, uh, it's an imperative. It's an obligation. It means to have a thankful attitude. And you need to be thankful. And then he builds on it. Verse 16 let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let the word of Christ dwell. That means to make a home in you. Read God's word. Let it dwell in your heart. And when you let that dwell in your heart, he says, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. And then he says, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Be thankful. Because you see, Gratitude or thanksgiving is really a reflection in your life of what God has done in your heart. When I sit there and think about all that God has done in my heart, then my life should reflect that in gratitude. And we're to make an overriding attitude of thankfulness and constant gratitude for all that God has done for us, giving us salvation, making us a part of his body. You're thankful for God's mercies and you're thankful for the privileges. And I'm telling you, when there's peace in the heart, there will be praise on the lips. And when there's peace in the heart, there will be praise on the lips. And we will praise him. And we will praise him in our daily lives. And it says here, with singing and songs and hymns that we're to sing with thanksgiving. Wow. So when you come together in a worship service, it says here, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual psalms with thankfulness in your hearts to God. It means that when we sing, that there needs to be welling up in us this incredible thankfulness 
of the God that we serve and be appreciative of that. You know, this, um, this next Saturday, it's the Iron Bowl. And it's like, they've called it not the mother of all Iron Bowls, but the son of the mother of all Iron Bowls, you know, like 2013. And so, and people are going to go and flock there and, and the stadium will hold about 87,000 plus and yet two million people will tell you years from now, I was there, I was there, all right. But you'll be there, and if you're there in the game or watch it on TV, it's gonna be electric. The atmosphere will be amazing. And as that atmosphere is amazing, you'll have both bands over there, and they'll start playing their songs, right? And the Auburn band will start over here, and they'll be playing, War Eagle, fly down the field. And everybody will be singing, and you'll be singing as an Auburn fan at the top of your lung. Yeah. Then all of a sudden, the Alabama band's going to kick up, and they'll go, yay, Alabama, drowned them tight. And everybody's going to be singing over there. We're going to be loving that. And then all of a sudden, they're going to get that guitar going, aren't they? They go, ding, ding, ding. They're going into Sweet Home Alabama. Oh, <laughs> they'll start playing Sweet Home Alabama, and every Alabama fan's going to be singing to the top of their lungs over there, okay? Yeah. And then all of a sudden, later in the game, they're going to bring the bass out over here on the Auburn side, and they're going to start doing a little Bon Jovi where they're going to talk about living on a prayer. Halfway there, living on a prayer, they're going to be singing like crazy. It's going to be amazing. And we're going to go to the game. We're going to scream. We're going to yell. The game's going to end. We're going to come home. We're going to come here to church. And then we're going to get over here to church. And we've got lined up the song, How Great There Are. And we're going to stand right here and go, then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee. How great Oh, how great thou art. What's wrong with that picture? You know, is that not true? And we are so jacked up on something that's so inconsequential and can get so revved up on it, but yet we come to church to sing. And I'm not saying we gotta jump pews and handle snakes. No, no, that's, that's February. Um, I, I'm saying it's part of the new vision, just thought I'd let you know. But, but it does mean that when we come here, we're to have such a gratitude in our hearts, a thankfulness for the God that we serve. You know, tonight we've got a service to where we will be praying for the persecuted church. If nothing else out of Thanksgiving, it should be that when you walk through those doors and sit in the pew, that you're not having to put your life in your hands. Now, I know there have been some crazies out there have done some things, but we have a freedom to worship. It's not like some government official is going to say, I'm sorry, you can't do that. We've got to close the doors. We get to come here. We get to worship. And then when we think about who we're worshiping and what Christ has done for us, and not just the fact that he saved us, but that once he saved us, he then gives us a purpose for life. And does that never just kind of blow your mind to know that the, the creator of all the universe, that when he was going after you and seeking you and you made the decision to receive him and he came into your life, not only did he sit there and say, hey, you're part of my family. You know, one day this life's gonna end on this earth. You're gonna spend eternity with me in heaven. Hey, but let me tell you something that's really, really, really cool. While you're here, I got a plan for you. I have got a plan for your life that you will be able to use the way that I have knit you together, the way you are gifted to go and to advance my kingdom and tell other people about the great news of Jesus Christ. 
You're going to have an opportunity to go in and to take a cup of cold water and pour into a person's life and to share them the gospel, and you're going to see their life change for eternity because I'm going to use you as that tool. You get that opportunity to do that all the way up to the last days of your life, and then you step into eternity. See, that's something that every Sunday when I come, I need to be thankful for. I need to be singing and singing to the rafters and just thinking out of thanksgiving. But there are going to be some of you that you're going to try that, and it's not going to happen only because it's too emotional. Because even as you try to sing that, just tears are going to come to your eyes because you're just hitting wave after wave of thanksgiving for what God has done for you. And some of you are going to be walking through so many difficult times, like maybe the hardest road you've ever walked in all your life, and you're going to come and you're going to start singing those songs, and it's going to create a joy in your life that's beyond anything that you can imagine. And you say, God, I don't understand why I'm in the situation I'm in, but I know that you're walking with me through it. And I'm walking out of this place today more confident in the fact that you are in control and that a peace of God is going to surround my heart and guard my heart. That's gratitude. That's thanksgiving. He says in verse 17, he says, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. One more time. Whatever you do, everything that you do, word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to the Father through him. Thanksgiving, it just goes all throughout the book of Colossians. We're to be thankful, and we're to have gratitude. So this day, when you think about living this resurrected life, when we think about living this resurrected life, it is a life that we put off all these other sins, but we put on this great stuff that we just talked about. We put on the attitude you know, of compassion. And we put on those acts of kindness and all the attributes of humility and meekness and the patience uh, and, uh, and the forgiveness and the love. And then we take that peace of Christ and we have that uh, thankful attitude, that attitude of gratitude, all those things. And we put those on and we go out and live that resurrected life. And so I think it's great that today in this service that we have an opportunity to partake of the Lord's Supper. Because whenever we take of the Lord's Supper, it says you're to do this in remembrance of me. It means we remember what Christ has done for us. We remember that we were sinners separated from God. We were lost in our sins and had no way to have a relationship with the Heavenly Father. And when Jesus came, he willingly went to the cross, died on that cross, not just the physical nature of it, which is horrendous when you read about it, but also the spiritual and emotional part of where there's that time that we can't even understand to where God had to turn his face against his own son, to where God separated from God. Just, you just can't understand it. But because of all the nastiness of the sin that was on him, and that was your sin and my sin, and he died for us. And then three days later, our heavenly father pulls him up from the grave and he raises him from the dead and he says, we've conquered death, we've conquered sin, we've got new hope for people that they can come into a relationship with God. And so that night, that night of his arrest, he had a dinner 
the Passover meal with his disciples. And as he was going through that dinner, he used it to share with them something about the elements. And as he was sharing something about those elements, he also was telling them, I want you to do this and do it in remembrance of me. And every time Paul would write about it, he said, we need to do this in remembrance of Christ and have thanksgiving in our hearts for what he's done for us. And at the same time, do some introspection and say, God, are there some things that I need to do different, that I need to change to put you first place in my life? So at this time, I'm going to ask our ushers if you'll come forward and uh, begin to, to gather the elements. And as they prepare to gather the elements, let me just say a word to all of you that are here. Uh, this is what we call the partaking of the Lord's Supper. If, uh, and this is for all those who made decisions for Christ, who are a part of God's family. Now, if you're visiting with us, uh, and if you've made a decision for Christ, you don't have to be a Southern Baptist. You say, yeah, I know I'm a believer. We want you to partake in this. And in just a moment, when we pass the elements, we'll ask you to take the cup. There's a wafer, and then there's the juice, and just hold on to it. I'll give you the instructions. But there may be some of you here that you look and you say, you know, hey, I'm, I'm coming. I'm visiting over here, but you know, I've never really done that. I've never really made that decision for Christ as my Savior so what I would ask you to do is when the tray comes, just go on and pass it, and you don't need to partake of that item. It's strictly for those who are believers. But I'd love for you to be thinking about what we've talked about in this message and also think about what that represents. And we're going to talk about that uh, in, in just one moment. And so um, if you'll do that, then I think we'll be ready. Let's prepare our hearts, and as we prepare our hearts, as we pass the elements, let God speak to you where both you remember what he's done, but at the same time, say, God, open up a searchlight in my own heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what Jesus has done for us. And because of his death, his burial, and his resurrection, that we can have a right relationship with you and we can be adopted into your family and to be a part of your family. And that your Holy Spirit then comes and resides within us. And we have that resurrection power to live our lives. And so during these moments, as we look at these elements, may we be thinking about the body and the blood and what Jesus did on that cross. And at the same time, Lord, pray that that Holy Spirit would convict us of any sin or anything or any doors in our own life that have been locked to you that we could open up and allow you to have total control of our lives. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.